I love the subject of marriage, first of all, because it is so beautifully displayed in the Word of God, and it's actually something that gives me, it builds my confidence in the Scriptures because we see how beautiful God's design is. It's also, as we come, as we've been singing, that marriage, for those who have been infected by sin, is transformed by the gospel, which is central to everything we're going to talk about today. I'm also happy to talk about this subject because this is an area in my life where God has richly blessed me for over 35 years with my wife, Caroline. Normally I have a rule that if I bring somebody up in a public talk, I owe them a dollar. I said I'm going to owe her hundreds of dollars before today is over. Um, And I really am richly blessed. Now, actually, I want to say one thing to you. If I use an example or an illustration... I'm really not talking about you. You may think I am. And some of you I've talked to and counseled with in the past. But the things that come up in marriage are the same things that come up over and over again. I'm going to give you examples. But it's not necessarily you I'm talking about in in these examples. I'm actually really trying to avoid anybody who might be here. Another thing to prepare you for is that you're not, if you've been a believer for a while, you've been married for a while, it's not like you're going to hear, wow, that's astonishing. I never knew the Bible said that about marriage. If, If you've been in a good church and you've been well taught, a lot of this is going to be way, by way of reminder. But I find that to be most profitable for my own soul. I've spent uh, most of my time the last few weeks redoing all of my material on marriage, and it has benefited me so much personally to be reminded of the riches of the truths of the Word of God and to desire to apply them in my life. And of course, I know many of you are here for the sake of your own marriage, which is wonderful, but Also, we are an equipping ministry, and so the things you're learning here, we want you to be able to use to help others because we're surrounded by uh, troubled marriages. Um, The concept of marriage and the concept of the family has undergone a really radical change just in my lifetime. We're all familiar with the more recent developments of the government uh, redefining marriage between men and men, and uh, even the practice of marriage has declined. Of the population a generation ago, over 70% were married. A lot of them would be too young to be married, but the 70%, that was a lot. Now it's about 50% or less of the population is married. There are people who never planned to be married. Uh, We have, uh, I've seen, I've subscribed to the Wall Street Journal, which is the finest non-Christian publication I know of, and almost every week there are articles like this, the global flight from family. It's not just in our nation, but uh, around the world. People are marrying less often, they're having fewer children, they're choosing never to have children, they're moving from relationship to relationship, Uh, our culture is calling evil good and good evil. Now Tim Keller points out that it was really over a century ago when people began to think of marriage from the standpoint of personal fulfillment with little concern for duty or the benefits of a stable marriage for the community that the decline began. And so you have a consumer view of marriage rather than a covenant view of marriage, a no-fault divorce, skyrocketing divorce rates, about just under half of marriages in our country end in divorce, uh, availability of birth control, which enabled people to separate uh, sexual union from parenthood and both from a commitment. And now we even have a widespread acceptance. And this is important because for those of us with kids, They are accepting, they're being swept away by the culture, accepting fornication, cohabitation, homosexuality, in spite of what we've been teaching them. And that's one of the battles we have in our homes. And then the whole viewpoint is that whatever I desire, whatever passions I have, must be right for me, regardless of who I hurt. Uh, There was a real case I had several years ago where a man and a wife with two kids came in, meeting with the husband and the wife, and the husband has decided, 12 years or so into his marriage, that he's a woman. And he wants to get, he wants to start going through the process of gender change, surgery, but he wants to be, remain married to his wife. And he claims to be a Christian, but she's saying, I don't want to live as a lesbian. (laughs) And Part of the problem now is the church is not drawing the lines clearly enough. The the battle now, there was just an article this morning on Gospel Coalition website, the battle for inerrancy now is, are we going to embrace what the Word of God says about marriage and family, or are we going to capitulate to the world? And really what's happened is there's been a rejection of the authority of God. And today, in this first talk, we're going to begin in Genesis, 
where we have the foundation of everything. Uh, The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That the first words of the Bible reveal that we are not autonomous, but we are accountable to God. He's made us. He owns us. It's not in the beginning matter. It's not in the beginning there was a big bang. In the beginning, God. And then as you move on, in verses 26 and 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we are not mere animals. We are spiritual beings made in God's image. And whereas the animals may mate and act according to their base instincts, we are in God's image, we have a knowledge of right from wrong, and we are accountable to Him for how we live. And then when we come to marriage, and this is what we're going to focus on in the first hour, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, you have the creation ordinance of marriage before the fall that God brings together. He creates the man, He creates the woman, He brings them together in the first marriage and tells us what marriage is all about. And this is a historical event. It's not a marriage myth as some would claim. And one proof of that would be in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, he tells the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus himself treats this as an actual historical event. I'm sure most of you believe that before you got here, but there's some people in seminaries, not this one, but uh, Bible schools who will treat it as if it might just be a story. And then God brings together the first man and the first woman in marriage, which is a covenant of companionship. In Malachi chapter 2, when God is condemning uh, those in Judah for unlawfully divorcing, and he says, your wife is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so marriage is a covenant created by God between a man and a woman, and it's for the benefit of humanity, for mankind. It's to reflect our relationship to Him. In the Old Testament, God says of Israel, for your maker is your husband. And in the Old Testament, God is the husband of Israel and Judah. And of course, in the New Testament, when kind of the theme verse for today's uh, seminar in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And this is so important about marriage, is that God wants our marriages to reflect our relationship to Him. And the way it works is, the more you understand God's love and grace to you and your relationship with Him, the better your marriage works. But it works the other way too. The more you understand in your marriage, living out with another flesh and blood being, the grace of God and the kind of love that God has for you, it then helps you better understand your relationship with the Lord going the other direction. It's also our premise that the Word of God is infallible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And we cannot change what we teach and what we believe. We cannot alter God's design because culture changes. Now, we as believers may come under increasing pressure as we refuse to do so. Uh, Some of the things I'm saying today would be defined as hate speech by some in our culture, and there are places where you get in trouble for saying that. So far, we're okay here. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman. It's been established by God, and it exists in the context of community. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, I'll begin reading. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, in the context of Genesis, if you'd read chapter 1, there was a statement that was repeated several times in chapter 1. After everything God did, what did He say? It is good. It is good. And so it's kind of striking here in verse 18 where it says, it's not good. Now, it doesn't mean it was bad. Sin hasn't come into the world yet. It means something is lacking. I have a friend who has been bringing popcorn to our home fellowship group. But it was just popcorn. No salt, no butter, just popcorn. It's not good. (laughs) And I had to explain to my friend that if you put some salt on it, you might get people to eat your popcorn. Well, in the same way, the man alone is deficient. And marriage has been designed by God to make you complete. 
marriage isn't just an outlet for sex. Marriage is a solution to loneliness. It's for companionship. Now, it's also taught in Scripture, and I have a typo in your notes. It should be 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul talks about how he had been gifted by God to be single. And there are other people who are single who, he says, the one who is married, verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 7, is concerned about the things of the world, how he pleases wife. But then he says in verse 32, the one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So, you know, singleness is way up in our culture in terms of not being married, but it's not for the reason Paul says. People today are single so they can serve themselves and not be committed. That's not the reason to be single. Paul says the reason for some people to be single is because you can serve God better single than married. Some people don't need someone there to overcome the loneliness, and that frees them up to be missionaries in hard places or to really give themselves fully to the Lord. Likewise, the reason to get married is so you can glorify God because that's how God has made you. There are some of us now single who would like to be married, and you're in that season of singleness when you can serve God as single, looking ahead to a future marriage. There's another reality I want to mention, though, is that there are some people who don't think they have the gift of singleness, but they're still single. They don't like that. And there's a hard reality in a fallen world, and that is that some people who are married and want kids don't get to have kids. And some people who are married and have kids don't have kids who walk with the Lord. And some people who want to be married can't get married because the right person isn't there. Uh, There are places, I've been in the Philippines, where you'll have a church where they're like, 100 women and 10 men. Statistically, the odds are not in your favor. And some people in this life are single against their will. And she imagined all her life that she would be married and have kids. And it did not come to pass. And and that's a sad reality of, of living in a fallen world. But even then, to use that singleness for the glory of God, to serve others, and then ultimately look to Jesus as your husband to look forward to the consummation of that when he comes again. But for most of us, it's not good to be alone. And after the Lord says it's not good for the man to be alone, he's created the man, not yet the woman, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, you pause here for a moment. What happens after God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him, it's not good for him to be alone? Most people think he puts Adam to sleep and takes the woman out. But there's something happens in between, isn't there? You have this parade of animals go by that Adam names. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Well, why does the Lord bring these animals to the man before making the woman? Well, the reason is clearly in verse 20, Adam saw all these animals, perhaps even seeing them paired off. Well, there's the lion and the lioness. They don't look the same, but they're the same kind. And uh, none of them is appropriate for him to relieve the loneliness. I know there's some people who get pets and they think that this cat or this dog is going to relieve the loneliness. And I think certain pets can be a gift from God, but There's a difference of kind, isn't there? And that's, by the way, one of the errors of evolution is we're all on this little kind of scale and, you know, we're just a little bit different than the monkeys and the dolphins or whatever. No, we are of an entirely different kind from all the other animals because we alone are made in God's image and nothing but another being made in the image of God can satisfy that loneliness. And then he says he's going to make a helper suitable, uh, someone not identical, but someone complementary. Uh, God made gender differences. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Paul tells husbands to be aware that their wives are, quote, weaker vessels. Women are different physically, emotionally, spiritually. And part of what I've learned over many years in my own marriage and observing hundreds of other marriages is that a good marriage is a, a blend, a very interesting blend of both similarities and differences. It's good to have some things in common. The most important one is to know the Lord and to want to serve Him. Some couples love to travel. Some couples love to hike and go to museums. But there are also differences. And these can create challenges, but they also can be beneficial. 
And usually those differences aren't really understood until you've been married just a little while, right? It all seemed to be so easy when you were courting or dating. Um, One guy said the differences between men and women is that a man will pay $10 for a $5 item he wants, and a woman will pay $5 for a $10 item she does not need. A woman worries about the future until she gets a husband. The man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. But these differences can be experienced in parenting, where one tends to be the very loving, permissive, the other one tends to be the one who's all about rules. Now, that can create massive clashes, or it can be complementary, where they can balance each other out, and one help the other to be more effective. The same thing with money. One's very generous with other people. The other one's more of a tightwad. And that can either become a point of, of conflict, or it can be a way you're each learning. I've learned as the tightwad saver person from a very generous wife. And yet we put restrictions on how much she can give away based on our income. Uh, one's a neat freak. The other one's kind of sloppy. One's always late. The other one, like, punctuality is next to godliness. But again, these can be beneficial. I've seen men as, who as single men uh, weren't doing that great, and they got married, and they were immensely improved and civilized under the influence of a godly wife. Someone who's more introverted marries the person who's more outgoing, and the introvert would always be at home, but the extrovert gets them out there. Um, my wife is a great benefit to me. As I'm super intense, I'm always doing stuff. My wife has taught me the value of relaxing now and then. Uh, one, one year when we had a, one of our annual getaways from anniversary, we went to Catalina Island, and uh, my idea was, okay, you're on Catalina Island, you're here for 20 hours, so you've got to do all the things there are to do in Catalina Island. <laughs> so we're going to go see the casino, we're going to go walk in the park, and we're going to do this and that and the other. And our boat was leaving like at 4 o'clock, and it was 2 o'clock, and we've already done all the stuff, and I'm kind of upset. What are we going to do now? <laughs> Isn't there anything else to do here? And so I guess we'll just have to sit and read. And so we, at our hotel, we got a couple chairs, and we started sitting and reading, and my wife said, that last two hours was the most fun I've ever had with you on a vacation. <laughs> so I'm glad she's teaching me to relax. Uh, you grow. You know, she likes art museums. I've been to a lot of art museums. I like sports. She tolerates that sometimes. <laughs> um, but part of it also is you grow in love is... Uh, she's collected stamps all her life. And I can find joy in saying, let's go to Riverside to a stamp show on the 38th anniversary of the day I asked you to marry me because I know you love stamps and you find joy in her joys and the differences become good things. And you should thank God for the differences. But in the context here as we move ahead, only a woman can complete a man, only a man can complete a woman. And as we move ahead, as the Lord Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And so, what does God make? He does not make a harem. Polygamy is contrary to the will of God. It was tolerated sometimes in the Old Testament. When Jesus quotes verse 24, he says, the two shall become one. That has always been God's design. And obviously, he did not bring another man. And this raises the question, well, did God create some people to be homosexual? The Scripture makes it very plain in many places. I've got some of the verses written there that any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is sinful, which includes homosexuality, which is in several places in Scripture specifically called out. It is contrary to God's design. That does not mean that we we don't deny that some people struggle with same-sex attraction. See, the rest of us struggle with opposite-sex attraction to the wrong people, right? We're all attracted to the wrong things in some ways. Just because you're married or engaged doesn't mean you're not capable of being attracted to someone who doesn't belong to you. And and part of the struggle because of our, our sinfulness is to fight that temptation. But we can never say that 
someone has been created by God to be an adulterer, a fornicator, or any other category of sin. We choose to rebel against him. But when counseling someone with same-sex desires, when 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. Now, I don't understand what it's like to be tempted by homosexuality, but I know what it's like to be tempted by many things. So I can still talk to that person, even though that's not my particular temptation. And the battle is just the same. And the good news is that many believers who have struggled with homosexuality have been transformed by God's grace. 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were you. You've been washed, you've been sanctified. And there's an article in NPR of all places, an article saying, attracted to men, a pastor feels called to marriage with a woman. And it's about a man who dealt with homosexual desires. He's now a married pastor, Presbyterian. Um, and, And he and his wife in this article say, we all have desires that we choose not to act on. It says in the article, the way they see it, people in any marriage must work to resist attractions from outside the relationship, whether from the same or the opposite gender. And of course, what we offer in the gospel is freedom from slavery to sin, whether it's to lust or adultery or fornication or homosexuality, whatever it may be, God can set you free through his grace in Christ. So the Lord makes this helper, and it's a very unusual method. As we see, he takes this rib of the man and he fashions it into a woman. It's different than any other way God had created up until now. We saw in chapter 1, he speaks and things come into being. We see that he made the man and the animals out of the dust of the ground. But this, this woman he makes out of the side of the man. And really the rest of Scripture explains why. When Paul says in Ephesians 5, and I, by the way, everything else the Bible teaches about marriage really is rooted in this passage. When Paul says in Ephesians 5 that a husband ought to love his wife as his own body, even though my wife wasn't literally taken out of me, the Lord wants me to see she's as much a part of me as Eve was Adam. And that's why I should cherish her and treat her honorably and respectfully, that she's equally in God's image. In Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them in his image, that she's not just another animal made out of the dust. She is a human being of equal worth, equal dignity, someone to be cherished. Uh, The church father Chrysostom wrote, let us remember that God did not take the woman from the man's feet to be trampled upon and enslaved by him, nor from his head that she should dominate him, but from his side to be his companion, from beneath his arm to receive his protection, and from near his heart to have his love and affection. I think Adam gets it. In verse 23, you have kind of the first love point. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He rejoices. He understands what God has done. Now we're going to get to this later, but I'll just mention briefly that this very first marriage already is reflecting the roles that God has designed for both husband and wife. That male headship was not the consequence of the fall, but it was God's design from the beginning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but indeed, woman for the man's sake. So she's been created to be his helper. And another significant aspect of Adam naming the animals is that naming is an authoritative act. You know, when I read about Adam naming the animals, that just sounds like the last thing I would have wanted to do as a man, to name things. That's My wife is supposed to name things. She's better at that kind of stuff. And I was just going, one, two, three, let's get this over with. <laughs> but through history, including in Scripture, you know, what's the name of Saigon now? It's now called Ho Chi Minh City because somebody conquered it and they renamed it after one of their leaders. And so naming is an authoritative act. By the way, who does Adam also name? He calls her woman, and then later he calls her Eve, the mother of all living in chapter 3. And so his headship is reflected in how he is made, how she is made from the beginning. Now the fall has made a mess of it. In chapter 3, verse 16, after the fall, she says to the woman, the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. 
In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In this expression, your desire will be for your husband. The word desire, I kind of was hoping it meant like she just can't keep her hands off of you and she's going to want you so much. But it's the same word used in chapter 4 of Cain when he's being warned, sin's desire is for you, Cain. Meaning sin wants to take you over in your anger and do something terrible. And so what it means here is you're going to be tempted, woman, because of the fall, to usurp your husband's headship. And he is going to be tempted not to lead you in a loving, gentle way, but to crush you by dominating you. And of course, that's what happens because of the fall. Women are tempted to take control, and men are tempted to be chauvinists and domineering. Thanks be to God for the gospel, that whoever's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and new things have come. And it's the gospel that redeems marriage, and it makes our marriages unique. Well then, on to verse 24, which is one of the most important verses, probably the most important verse, single verse in the Bible about marriage, because God gives the directives for marriage. Um, It used to be when you got a new gadget, they would give you like a manual with it, right? To tell you how to use it. Nowadays, the manual is often on the gadget, which means if you can't use the gadget, it's very hard to read the manual. Have you ever found that problem? You know, the solution to your problem is on this website. Well, the problem is, I can't get on the web. So, um, well, God has given a manual for marriage here, this summary of instructions, which is foundational. It's quoted several times in the Bible by Jesus, by Paul, and it's very simple. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so marriage involves leaving. And the idea there is that marriage creates a new family unit. It's a reminder as we move on through history after Adam and Eve that the parental relationship is one that is more temporary. It's changing. Uh, And the marriage relationship is one that only changes upon death. And this truth is conveyed in a traditional wedding, isn't it? What happens in a traditional wedding? But the father, who has cared for this girl all her life, brings her up to the front and stands between her and the groom. And then the preacher says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I do. He gets out of the way and he sits down. He puts her hand, before that, he puts her hand in the hand of this young man who's supposed to take care of her. But there's a lot of good symbolism there, isn't there? It's saying... Now I'm entrusting her to you, and you're creating a new family that's going to be, in a way, separate and independent of our family. She's going from my family to your family. And so that's reflecting this truth. And it's good for us as we have children. From the time you know you're expecting this child, the anticipation is one day he or she will grow up and will leave and be in their own family And you need to get ready for that. And part of the goal of parenting is to make them ready for that independence and maturity. Some marriages suffer because they make the children the primary thing and the marriage secondary. Lots of problems result. One is when the kids are gone, what do the parents have left? If that's been the whole thing that kept them together. But it also creates problems later in terms of letting go. So it would be a violation of God's design to be so wrapped up in your kids you neglected your spouse because marriage is the primary relationship. And while grown children should still honor their parents, and Jesus points this out, it even includes material support if they have need, uh, they're no longer in subjection to their parents. And a failure to leave causes problems, and it's contrary to God's design. Uh, Now, what does it mean to leave? Does it mean you have to go live in another state or another country? My wife and I moved to Saudi Arabia shortly after we were married, so we did a great job. Um, I think geographic leaving is typically part of it. I mean, it's ultimately emotionally, but I think it's hard to create the space for a new family to grow if you're in the same house. Many, I can't say from the Bible you're not allowed to do that, but I can say in the overwhelming majority of cases there, there's tension. It's kind of like if you've got one plant in the pot and you try to plant another plant in a pot that's only designed for one plant, it's going to be hard for the second plant to grow. Who's in charge of the kitchen? Who's 
the patriarch, the matriarch in this situation, um, under the current economic stress, some young couples find themselves for a while living with family. It can be very attractive economically. I cannot say from the Bible you're not allowed to do that. I can say, though, I warned you. And I've had people before, oh, this is great, we're all so happy, but you're there for a while, and there are often stresses and tensions that make it worth extraordinary effort to have some freedom, some independence. And then leaving, I think, also involves leaving economically. Ideally, when people get married, they're prepared to take on the responsibilities of providing. Ephesians 5.29 says a husband is to nourish his wife. I think that means to provide for her. Now, it's not wrong for parents to help their kids out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that parents are responsible to save for their children, and there can be an appropriate helping. But there also can be a dangerous kind of helping in the sense, I can think of two dangers. One is you help so much they never grow up. And you enable a lifestyle of overspending that they never learn how to live within their means and advance themselves because they keep getting bailed out. And so the leaving is hindered. Another aspect of that is most people, when they're putting a lot of money out, they expect to get something from it. And there can often be, when there's financial help given, then there are expectations that come with it and control that comes with it, which interferes with the independence of of the new family. Most importantly, though, is to leave emotionally. As I mentioned, some parents are so wrapped up in their kids that they're not really ready to let go. If a marriage has been strong, then the nest isn't really empty because you're back where you were when you started 30 years ago. It's just the two of you, and you kind of liked it back then, and it's okay. But there are many cases, and again, cases that come through our counseling center where you have the in-laws on one side or both sides expecting a a level of control, expecting kind of this patriarchal situation of uh, following the dads that can be very, very destructive to the marriage. Uh, There there are some children also who rely too much on their parents. And, you know, there's a problem. They rush to the parents, sometimes giving their side and not the other side, and then it turns the parents against you know, the wayward spouse. There can be conflicting family traditions. Well, our family has always done it this way. Yeah, well, now you've got two families you've blended together, and you're going to have to make up your mind together how you're going to do it without living in terror that you're going to upset this in-law or that in-law. And the in-laws have to realize that as well. Now, I've also seen another extreme. Some people take this leave thing so far is they isolate themselves from their parents, and that's not honoring the parents. And we've had cases where even one spouse has been jealous like of the husband's relationship with his mom and say, I forbid you to see your mother. You can't do that. We are still responsible to honor our parents. And then the second expression the Lord uses is shall be joined. The traditional word is to cleave. Um, this is the reminder of the covenant of commitment. And there's two aspects of cleaving I want to address. One is that marriage is a permanent, it's a lifelong covenant commitment. There's a a promise to be faithful. And it's a promise that is made. And the traditional vows are really good. It's for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's what a covenant is. It's it's not just a consumer decision where as long as I'm getting a good deal here, I'm going to stay around. But as soon as it gets hard, if you gain a bunch of weight, I'm gone. Or if you become disabled, your parents will have to take care of you. Um, It means even if you change, and you're going to change. Uh, One man said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of them has been me. True enough, right? In 35 years, I've had a few different Carolines. I'm thankful each one's been a little better than the one before, but not everybody gets that deal. But in these vows, we make these promises, and you'll see situations in which one spouse is pushing the other around in a wheelchair. Now, if you're 75, you almost think, well, yeah, that might have happened. Sometimes they're 25 or 35. And there's actually a very famous case of Robertson McQuilkin, who is the president of Columbia Bible College, and his wife 
um, contracted Alzheimer's disease, still at a relatively young age, I think late 50s perhaps. And he chose to resign from his position as the head of this college, which had been kind of a lifelong aspiration of his, in order to fulfill his marriage vows to take care of her. And I'd like to, we're going to play now his speech as he announced his decision. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. That's what it means to cleave till death parts you. And death did part them, ultimately. Now, it's harder to keep the commitment when the changes seem to be the other person's fault. And sometimes, some of you probably find yourself in a hard marriage. You say, well, I would not have married this person if I would have known this is what it was going to be like. And that's where it really gets down to, Psalm 15 says, the righteous man swears to his own hurt and doesn't go back on it. You made a public vow before God, for better or for worse, and that means loving this person graciously and being committed to the marriage, even if he's not the spiritual leader you expected him to be, even if she hasn't taken care of herself the way you had hoped. Divorce is a violation of God's design. Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man separate. And so, again, some stay when it's hard. The world will tell you. You're going to have ungodly friends who will say, you could do better. You made a mistake. Get out of it. Or he's changed. But like Dr. McClellan, you, you made a promise to be a covenant keeper. And you're trusting God that there'll be greater happiness yet to come as you do his will. And that God will meet your needs. The good news is some really hard marriages are transformed by God's grace. Tim Keller writes that Two-thirds of unhappy marriages become happy within five years when they choose not to divorce. God is able to turn things around. And we have seen very hard situations where God has turned things around as people decide there is no option but to stay. Uh, There was a movie, I think in the 50s, called The Defiant Ones. And it was about two convicts who escape and they're chained together. One is a white racist chained to an African-American. And in order for them to make their escape good, they have to cooperate. And by the end, they actually are willing to make sacrifices for each other. Well, that's a picture, perhaps, of some marriages. You're chained to someone, you aren't real happy about it, but if you realize this is a bond created by God, then we've got to learn to cooperate and make it work and trust Him to do that. But also, cleaving doesn't just mean you stick with it till one of you dies. It means God's design is that you be companions, that you be friends. Marriage is meant to be the most intimate of all human relationships. In Song of Solomon, she calls her husband her friend. She is your friend by covenant, Malachi says, your companion. Uh, 
Conflict we're going to talk about later ruins many marriages, but I think neglect ruins more marriages. And so cleaving means not just, I don't want to embarrass myself by getting divorced. And there are couples who live together as if they were, they're still legally married, but it's as if they were single living two separate lives. That's not according to God's design. And then third, they shall be one flesh. They shall become one flesh. And as I understand it from Scripture, there are three purposes scripturally to the sexual union in marriage. The first is the physical consummation of the relationship between husband and wife is God's sign of that covenant. I know we culturally have a ring, and it's fine to wear the ring. I think it's a good way to kind of mark you out as leave me alone. Um, But the marriage union is something very private and very special, but it's expressing that commitment. It's, it's tied to that commitment. It's one reason why a husband and a wife should come together regularly to remember the oneness that has been created in their union. The marriage relationship, the, the marriage bed is also designed to produce children. God says in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127 says children are a blessing from God. And it's it's God's design that children be raised by their mother and their father in a home together, and that these children be the fruit of their parents' love for one another, and that those parents be committed to one another. And again, even in, in the Wall Street Journal, these articles are describing the harm that is taking place in our culture, European cultures, as more and more children are being born out of wedlock, Over 40% of children don't have the privilege of being raised by both parents. And even sociologists and psychologists recognize that there's harm to that. Another way our culture is changing is in many countries, the the birth rate has declined so much that the population is in a nosedive in Japan, in Europe. And the only reason here it's not happening is a lot of it is because of immigration. When we do pre-marriage counseling... Uh, this will be an issue that comes up. Is if you have someone who says, yeah, I want to be married, I don't want to have kids, and you're perfectly capable and young enough to have kids, that would trouble me. Because that's part of the deal. Sex isn't just to have fun with your spouse. Sex produces children and completes the family according to God's design. Now, I know quite a few of you are doing really well with that children thing, so I won't dwell on it. But I think that's one way our young people have been influenced by the culture where they want to delay having kids or perhaps never have kids. Uh, And God's design is that you have kids. And then the sexual union is given by God for the enjoyment of both husband and wife. The entire Song of Solomon is written about this. And Proverbs 5, when the man is being warned against immorality, told to stay far away from the immoral woman, he says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should, you, should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? Now, this is the one part of sex our society gets. The commitment part, no. Kids, no. Fun, yes. But the pleasures of the sexual union are designed by God to exclusively take place within the covenant of marriage. Now, in terms of counseling, when a couple says they have sexual problems, almost invariably they're relationship problems. Wayne Mack says it's like the red light on your dashboard. The problem is not with the light on the dashboard. It means there's something wrong under the hood with the engine when the light comes on. And when relationships are strong and the husband is loving his wife in a Christ-like way and she's respecting him and following him, they naturally come together. Caroline says it's like you're magnetized. And if the relationship is bad, it's kind of like your opposite magnet. You have two magnets and they're repulsed by each other. You point them the wrong direction. Sex is not about merely pleasing yourself. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about how your body belongs to your spouse. But it's rather about serving and showing grace. 
Uh, a lot of marriages, the big problem will be that it's kind of like, I'll give the other person what they deserve. And we had a seminar on this a few years ago, uh, from idol to blessing, and Caroline had to talk about grace sex versus graceless sex for the women. And this is not a place where you give the person what they deserve. This is a place where you show grace and give better than what is deserved. Tim Keller writes, if your main purpose in sex is giving pleasure, not getting pleasure, then a person who doesn't even have much of a sex drive physically can give to the other person as a gift. This is a legitimate act of love. And then we need to teach our children a biblical view of sex. They're being inundated by bad information. I don't care how sheltered you think they've been. But one way for that to happen is for them to realize their parents are still excited about being married to each other. They're still attracted to each other. That doesn't mean in any way act immodestly. But it does mean they should see there's some electricity under their own roof. They should have a sense that where it's really at is not after high school prom with some guy you may never see again, but it's 30 years into marriage with someone you've shared life with and you dearly love. Any sexual expression outside of marriage is a sinful and destructive use of God's gift. And you know, there's all this debate about sex among Christians or supposed Christians. It's really very simple, okay? God drew the circle. It's called marriage. Anything inside of there, marriage between man and woman is good sex. Anything outside of that circle is bad sex. It's sinful sex. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, other things the book of Leviticus talks about I'm not going to mention. Um, Tib Keller writes, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything else. Fornication, Hebrews 13 says, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And again, very, very sadly, even among professing Christians, there have been articles and statistics about this. Some of them think as long as it's not intercourse, they can do everything else. That's part of sex. Sex isn't just the part that comes at the end. It's Delighting in God's gift of the opposite sex physically and to do that before you're married, even if you're going to get married, is a violation of God's design because the covenant has not yet been made. And we've had cases where a couple has come in and they're a few years into the marriage and there's some real tension in the relationship. And we, fa- we found that it appeared that the fact that they'd been much too physical prior to marriage, there was an issue of guilt there, was, there were sexual problems within marriage, and there was a lot of help given when they confessed to God their sin. They sought forgiveness from each other and were set free from the guilt of that sin. Um, and then cohabitation. Uh, cohabitation is a relationship without a covenant, and that's becoming more and more common where people enter to these things. They kind of look like marriage, but it's kind of a counterfeit marriage. They're paired off. This is my partner. This is my girlfriend. And again, the sad thing is that our kids are accepting this as normal. Many kids in Christian homes still think, well, I'd still want to live with somebody for a while before I decided whether I wanted to make a commitment or not. Clearly a violation of God's design. Tim Keller describes the person who cohabits as saying, I don't love you enough to close off all my other options for life. See, in the vows of marriage, each promises to forsake all others for his or her spouse alone until death parts them. This means that if at some future date one feels attracted to someone else, the marriage vow is remembered and that relationship is not pursued and is actually avoided. It also means that if the marriage ever becomes very difficult, one fights to save the marriage and keeps his, his or her commitments regardless of how hard it is or even how he or she feels. One guy wrote what he called the vows of cohabitation. I, Rick, take you, Monica, to be my cohabitant, to have sex with you and to hold you responsible for half the bills, to love and take advantage of you from this day forward or as long as this arrangement works out. I will be more or less faithful to you as long as my needs are met and if if nothing better comes along. If I should break up with you, it doesn't mean this wasn't special to me because I love you almost as much as I love myself. I commit to live with you for a while, so help me me. 
In our day, most couples have cohabited before marriage. There's a much higher divorce rate among those who have cohabited. And many, who co- a large percentage who cohabit, never get married. And there is great harm, including to the kids. Uh, adultery, uh, we'll talk more about avoiding that later. Uh, the sexual violation of the marriage covenant, I am deeply grieved how common it is among professing Christians. Again, statistics saying that you know, 30 to 40% of the population at large at some time commits adultery outside of marriage. We should be a lot better than that because of what God has done for us in Christ. Lust. Jesus said if you look upon someone else to lust after her or him, you commit adultery in your heart. Uh, pornography, fantasies, self-gratification. When 1 Corinthians 7 says your body belongs, your sexuality belongs to your spouse for their pleasure, not to pleasure yourself. And, and God judges sexual sin. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Another violation of God's design is neglecting your spouse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive one another, lest you be tempted. So, in summary, marriage is created by God to reflect our relationship to Him. His love for us, our response to that love. Marriage is designed as a covenant, a promise. And the vows of marriage reflect that promise to Leave father and mother to be committed for life, not just to stay married, but to be the best friend of this person, to be faithful, to build one another up. And thanks be to God that God still brings Eve's to Adam's. In his providence, he brings together men and women, and we should be thankful. As Adam realized what God has done, and he was joyful, we who are married should be thankful to God for the blessing of marriage. We should protect our marriages. We should invest in our marriages. Now, maybe you feel guilty because you failed in various ways and some of these things brought you conviction. The gospel is a proposal from the Lord. Though you be sinful, though you failed, he says, repent and believe, and I will accept you as my bride. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will make you holy. I'll be joined to you forever. And it's only when you know his love in that way, the love that comes in the gospel where Christ died to purify his bride. It's when you know that love, you can freely show that love in marriage. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity and the power of it. Lord, help us to take seriously the things you say. We know your ways are best, yet we are weak. We need the help of your spirit to to move forward. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.